Hi, my name is Kim Wilkins, and I'm a graduate student at the School of Education at the University of Virginia. I'm studying curriculum and instruction with a focus on innovation and computer science education. This series of podcast episodes is all about bringing computer science education research into the K-8 classroom. Well, welcome back, everybody. I am very excited about this next guest because we have actually met Tom, I think you met you at uh, VISTI, the Virginia Society yeah. for Technology Education Conference, and you were showing these really awesome robots, which I loved and then purchased and started using. So I was really excited to be able to talk to you about how you were a researcher and then that turned into your company that you founded. So I, I wanted to see what that journey was like. So today we have Tom Lowers with us. He's a founder of Birdbrain Technologies. And can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So thank you, Kim. So my background is as an engineer and as a roboticist. And as part of my PhD work, I started developing educational robotics and then um, decided in 2010 when I graduated to found a company, Birdbrain Technologies, that was all about kind of bringing those research projects into into reality, right? Getting them into actual classrooms, getting them getting them used. So for the last 11 years, I've been a small business owner and have learned a lot about you know, the business side of things while continuing to learn a lot about education and educators. And I mean, my, my goal really is to develop educational tools that spark deep and joyful learning experiences in the classroom. And the way to do that is um, through collaboration with educators, through making sure that they are well supported with the tools that, you know, I as an engineer help to create. That's really so awesome. So what got you interested in sort of educate the education space? I know that you're more of an engineering background, but you also do a lot with computer science. Like, how did you even get interested in this whole area? Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in educational robotics first as a as a student. So I, I joined a high school robotics team that got me into engineering. Uh, when I was in college, I was in the robotics club at, at my university and kind of wanted to actually one of the things I was interested in there was just democratizing robotics, trying to get beginners, you know, beginner undergraduate students involved. So I co-founded a course called Fun with Robots, where, you know, student led, but everybody, everybody builds a robot is sort of the goal. Uh, so I was interested, even as an undergraduate, even as an engineer, in the potential of robotics in terms of education and just getting non-roboticists to use it. And then in my PhD work, I kind of naturally gravitated towards work that had social impact. And uh, the work that was available was in the education space, though, the work where I could see the impact happening pretty rapidly, right? So. I joined a lab at Carnegie Mellon University called the Create Lab, which is all about using robotics technologies and developing new robotics tools to empower communities of practice. And the way that that lab operated was to involve end users, in the case of education, that would be teachers and students, in the process, in the design process as early as possible. Yeah, so... I guess I'm curious, you, you, your talent would have been, I'm sure, very sought after, either after undergraduate and master's. And so what kept you going? I think the thing that, that convinced me to start a business and take the risk of doing that 
was by the time my PhD was ending, you know, I had been kind of the hardware designer on these two research projects, which led to the Finch robot and the Hummingbird Robotics Kit, which are the uh, products that BirdBrain currently sells. And we'd already seen success in the classroom. Like each research study had built 100 kits or 100 robots. We used them with teachers. And so we were seeing early successes. And, you know, I thought, well, if I don't do this, these projects, while they will have an academic impact in the sense of creating papers, they won't necessarily continue to have a social impact without commercialization and sustainability. So I thought, well, you know, I'm graduating. Let's try this. <laughs> you know, what, what's the real risk here? As you said, like I had a PhD in robotics. If it didn't work after two years, I was pretty sure I was still going to be employable in some some other field, in, like right, in some other right. place. So. Well, let's take a dive into a couple of the papers that I believe were sort of the groundwork for both of these robots. The first one is Robot Diaries, Broadening Participation in the Computer Science Pipeline Through Social Technical Exploration. And the other is Design. So I think that was sort of the pre-Hummingbird. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's an early... That, that's sort of before we had developed the Hummingbird Kit, but it describes our research into developing kind of robotics activities at that point for middle school girls. Uh, and I can talk about how that changed over time, but that was the very initial focus. Nice. So maybe we should, maybe we'll, we'll just do that. We'll kind of go through that one and then we'll go through the other one. You know, the, the thing that sparked the research that led eventually to the Hummingbird Kit, and in both of these cases, we're talking about four or five years of research before commercialization, and then in some cases also research after commercialization. But what sparked it was uh, some of the women in the lab basically saying, looking around and saying, you know, if I was a seventh grader right now, and this is 2005, even though I studied computer science in college, I would not be particularly attracted with the types of robotics activities that seventh graders are currently being exposed to, which at that time was primarily uh, Lego League robotics after school programs. Not to knock those, but just saying kind of the dynamics of that and what they were interested in, it wouldn't necessarily have appealed. Right. And so the early research was trying to find robotics activities that had the same kind of learning goals, conceptual understanding, uh, but that would appeal to a broader set or a different group of people than, than what was currently available. And so the first thing we did was focus groups with, with middle school girls. You know, the very first thing we did was actually a, a session where we came with this idea of a robot diary where you would like write something and then the robot would key off of things that you've written and, and show emotion. The girls hated that. So Robot Diaries got misnamed right away. Um, and we actually later changed the name to Arts and Bots. But then we started just working with groups of girls in you know after school centers and using essentially just off the shelf materials to see what would engage them. And this, this idea of combining crafts materials with robotics seemed to be a, a really good hook. Like that was really engaging because you can create almost anything out of cardboard and feathers and glue, and no one has any sort of preconceived notions about what that should be, right? It's not gendered. It's not a gendered activity. 
And so it actually turned out to be a really powerful way to introduce robotics. Yeah, and I have to agree. I remember the demo, I think it was that dragon and maybe some of the flowers. And then you just let, you, you, I think you just had a space and you could play around with that. And I was totally hooked. I had, I don't know if I had founded Tech Girls by then, but I was definitely interested in how to address the gender gap in tech and especially at middle school, because that's when stereotypes and a lot of other things kind of shut down their interest. And so I was like so excited when I saw this robotic kit and how you could build around it. And I think I, if I didn't get one right then, I got one <laughs> soon thereafter and have been a fan ever since. So it's, it's so great to hear how you really incorporated input and feedback from middle school girls instead of kind of assuming what would work in that space. And also that, you know, looking at what was out there, especially the contest-based things, I think that that is a, yeah, it's an interesting, there should be more choices. Like it's not that that's bad, but there needs to be Mm -hmm. more variety, just like there are more variety of people. Yeah. And we did, I mean, we did some research to back up whether that was an assumption that we were just making or whether that there was something there, even with the, you know, girls kind of being turned off of the robotics Lego competitions. And we, we did some surveys with girls and interviews with girls that basically backed it up where parents were saying, yeah, you know, I sent her to a Lego robotics camp and it was all boys. And the first, after the first day she wanted to leave, like, so we had that. It wasn't just, you know, again, you have to check all of these assumptions, right? If we had started with just the robot diary, as we'd imagined it, we would have made something that no one wanted to use. And if it turned out that, you know, the person at the lab or the women at the lab who saw Lego and said, you know, this wasn't going to appeal to me. If if it was just unique to them, that wouldn't have been a valid assumption. So you always have to check these things by actually asking. Right. But then you have to be willing to change as well. (laughs) Yeah. And I I like, um, I think it was in this paper, how you wrote that technology is not the motivator, but the enabler. So I Mm -hmm. think a lot of programs, they sort of, yeah, they start with technology which if you're already in techno- into technology is great, but if it's something you have either not been into, not been exposed to, you know, or, or again, those stereotypes about it kick up, then that's not a motivator. Yeah. So the other uh, paper is designing the Finch, creating a robot aligned to computer science concepts. Yeah, so that paper takes us through kind of the timeline of about three or four years of computer science research um, where the hypothesis at the beginning of the research was if we design a robot, physical robot for computer science education, and at that point it was introductory, and by introductory we meant high school AP and college freshman courses because this is 2005, 2006, that's what introductory CS looked like back then. Uh, If we design a robot specifically for that, we will improve learning and retention because we have some, some initial indications from other studies that there seemed to be something to creating something physical, what's now known as physical computing, but that having something physical to program seemed to help with those. And, you know, it takes, takes it through kind of how we engaged high school and college instructors, how we surveyed them at the beginning, how we worked with them to develop activities, how we worked with them to develop what I call a kitchen sink robot, 
which was sort of an off-the-shelf robot that I put together with hardware. I mean, it cost like $1,000, so it was way too much, right? But it helped us identify which features and affordances were actually useful in a computer science classroom. And then boiling that down, you know, using it in, in classrooms with students and teachers, boiling that down to figuring out, okay, here's the, our actual feature set. Here's what we really want. Let's now design a robot from the ground up that has all of these features and hopefully is also relatively inexpensive. And we were aiming for something like a $99 price point because at the time we were thinking, well, maybe you buy this instead of your college textbook for introductory CS or, or a high school can afford to have, you know, 15 or 30 of these in a classroom without it being too much. Right. So that, that was, yeah, it's all about that whole design process. And that alignment piece, you know, the word aligned is in the title of that because we were, you know, in, in educational design, you talk about aligning your instructional goals with your assessment and with your instruction. So your learning goals, assessment, instruction all have to be aligned. And we were kind of adding this fourth piece of, okay, let's design the tool that you're using to be aligned with those other three things. Yeah, and I think you, you paid special attention to not disrupting the curriculum mm -hmm. too much, but providing a way to enhance it and you know, kind of plug into it and, and elevate it, yeah. but not like, oh, here's a whole new thing. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, the AP computer science curriculum is pretty set, you know, you kind of have to work within it. You can't just say, hey, here's a robot and you have to throw out like your entire curriculum and teach something different. Right, uh, so I'm curious when you're prototyping both of these robots, like, I assume you're, you have a lab space, you're, you know, trying out all these different things. How do you then, before you, you know, decided to take it into your company, how do you then make enough of them <laughs> or decide when you're ready to make enough of them for testing? So both of these studies were, they were actually initially funded by the Heinz Endowments, which is a big, you know, foundation here in Pittsburgh, catch up. And then largely funded by the National Science Foundation. And that funding allowed us to make prototypes at enough of a scale to do significant testing, as I mentioned, like 100, 150 prototypes of each, of like the beta hummingbird kit and the very early Finch. And I mean, there is sort of a process as a hardware engineer when designing a product, you kind of, or at least the process I engage in is, you know, I'll, I'll make a prototype I might even hand solder that pro prototype. So assemble it myself. And then once I feel like we've got the bugs out, we'll make a hundred and we make a hundred with like a local circuit board manufacturer here. And we did have an assembly party for the finches in the lab. So we got the circuit boards, those were assembled, but we had the plastics and we had to screw them all together and, you know, it took two hours with everybody contributing. So it wasn't a huge lift. But it's kind of you fun know. to be like, hey, I, <laughs> I helped make this. Yeah. So I think in that paper I was looking at is that with the finches, you wanted to make sure that you already talked about the, the expense, but then also that the feedback time between coding and running it in the physical environment was mm -hmm. closer together. And I don't know if you've seen Brett Victor's uh, Inventing on Principle, but it's something that really inspired me uh, several years ago when I first saw it. And 
he was talking to software engineers and he's like, why do we make the, you know, you have to code it and then compile it and then you see results. Like, why can't that be more instantaneous? And we're getting closer and closer with software. But I was wondering why was that a principle that was important to you? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the original Finch was designed to work in Java, in the Java software language. And because we were really focused on AP computer science and also college freshman level courses, we wanted to make sure you had to use standard Java or that you could use standard Java, not some sort of version of Java that would compile down to a, a robot. And so it was really important that, you know, compiling and running a, a program for the Finch felt and was essentially the same as compiling and running a regular Java program. Now, over time, one of the benefits of that, one of the benefits of essentially making it so that the Finch was tethered to a computer was that as you know, you, we released support for things like Snap and drag and drop programming, then you could use that tether to provide the kind of instantaneous like programming where you click on a block and you see it happen immediately, you, you get your feedback uh, very quickly. And I do think that's important. I think that's any, any friction you put in between like writing the code and running the code. You know, if you have to wait 30 seconds between those, you it slows down your iterative process significantly. Right. right. Well, from both of these, what are the big takeaways that you hope researchers take away? Yeah, I think, I mean, it sounds, on the one hand, it sounds obvious. And on the other hand, I think, especially people with an engineering background are not necessarily thinking about things, like they're, they're not necessarily thinking about things this way, but you know, you really do need to involve people, the people who you're trying to serve essentially with what you're trying to develop as early as possible. And, you know, like in Robot Diaries, you need to give them agency to say, if they don't like an idea, you know, that's, that's not on them. That's on you to like <laughs> change your, change your idea, you know, not just develop something because it seems cool to you or because, you know, it's like, it's a neat thing. So working with educators and working with students from the start, and then if you're working in like in the education space, thinking about the learning goals and the assessment and the classroom environment and letting that drive a lot of your design decisions, right? It, it's not about, because if you can't get that all aligned, I guess, and working, you won't be able to make something that works well in that environment. What about educators? What do you hope they take away from both your research and these tools that you've created for them? I think one thing I would look at if I were evaluating tools is I would ask how they were designed, right? So if I were thinking about something new to bring into my classroom, I would ask like, how was this designed and evaluated in the first place? Is this something that somebody kind of cooked up or adapted to the classroom? You know, is this a company that is trying to sell something that was their educational toy and now making it work in classrooms? And how, how much of a kludge is that? And how kind of built into it is it, right? Like how much are they just trying to add on top of it to make it work in a classroom? Because the more that they have to modify something to make it work in the classroom, the more worried I would be. So, so that would be one thing is really thinking about like, 
was this tool designed with the classroom, with teachers in mind, with students in mind? I think another is that you have real insight, knowledge, and experience that technologists lack and don't have. And the only way to develop new tools, I think, that are really going to work in classroom environments is by having you involved, right, in some way. So your opinions and thoughts about tools, they are, they're not secondary, they're primary. They're, they're the things that people need to hear. So if you can be involved in, in research or if you can be involved in, in new tool development, or even if you're not necessarily involved in that sense, but you are using something and it's not working for you for some reason, or it is working, provide feedback to the company. If they're a good company, if they're one that is you know, customer focused and thinking about like the importance of not just selling, but also how their products are being used and that they're being used effectively, then they should alter and change and listen to that feedback. So I, I would say feel, feel empowered because you should be empowered because you have knowledge no one else has. You have experience that is valuable. That's great to hear. I also think having a community you know, especially for educators who may be trying this out for the first time, um, yeah. knowing that there's a community or, or, you know, yeah, that you're not just a, a company that there's no access to because you, you need to figure some things out. And on that, like, what about, obviously, I want to see all K-8 educators doing some computer science, and I'd love them to be using these robots. What do you say to somebody who is sort of new to all this and maybe feeling a little overwhelmed. Yeah, I think your point about community is really important. And actually, this goes back a little bit to, you know, what educators should look for in terms of the educational tools also. It's, you know, what kind of resources are there around this tool? So is there a community that I can join of, of other educators? Is there professional development? Is it free? Um, or do you have to pay for it? it? What kinds of resources can I quickly see already? But I think for somebody who's new to you know, coding, robotics, I know that that can be scary if it's something that you're looking at for the first time. And I think I would say, you know, allow yourself to feel a little bit of fear. It's, it's okay. Like, I think the, the reason that most teachers consider doing this is not because they necessarily want to do robotics. It's because they've decided that it is best for their students. And that motivation actually makes me really, it, it's a really like just fantastic motivation, right? Like I, I, you are doing something uncomfortable, but you're doing it because you think it's, it's right for your students and you're moving out of your comfort zone. And that is, that's just wonderful. And I, I think, as a developer, I want to support that mm -hmm. <laughs> as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so the, the way to do it, you know, is to find people who may be able to help, may be able to mentor, give yourself some grace. Don't worry too much. If it, especially if it doesn't work the first day, allow yourself to be okay with that. You, you kind of have to have a, a growth mindset where you recognize that it may take a little while and that you may have to experiment. And that may be, you know, something that, that people can help you through. So don't feel like you have to do it in isolation. 
look for resources, look for, and by resources, I mean, not just resources like on our website, but other people. So we do have a Facebook group now in, in our case where you can join and ask questions uh, of other educators. And you can also reach out to us directly. And I think there are certainly other companies that have similar structures that, you know, can, can you provide you with that? Yeah. So just to highlight a few other things that you all are doing, you all have a loaner program for the Finches, which is really cool. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the Finch loan program started way back in 2013 and it sort of, you know, our mission is deep and joyful learning for all students, right? And so that all students has always been a, a part of the company DNA and how do we how do we reach as many students as possible as part of the, the thinking behind that? And we didn't want a financial barrier to necessarily prevent access. So even though we're for-profit, we put together a program where you could borrow as a teacher or a librarian in the US, you could borrow a flock of robots for a fixed period of time, a few months to use uh, in computer science education. And the loan program in the last year and a half it's been complicated by the pandemic, by supply chain shortages, but we are planning to, it, it's not at what I would consider full strength right now, but we're planning to get it back to full strength in the next few months because the chip shortages are e easing a little bit. And at that point, we'll be able to basically refresh it with our newest Finch robot. So to have a thousand Finch robot 2.0s in the, in the program, as opposed to our older version. So I'm really looking forward to it starting back up and really getting it, I guess, full strength. It is up. You can kind of borrow Finch ones right now, but it's it's ad hoc. And it's been ad hoc for the last year because things were just so complicated. Like, who even knew if, you know, we could send you robots? Like, is your school open? Is it open today? Maybe it's not open to tomorrow. Like, it, right. it, was, it was difficult. But in the long term, it's something that will continue running. And it is absolutely free. It does have an application process. And we try to say yes to as many people as possible. Yes, um, I've done that. Better it's than awesome. <laughs> so far. Yeah. So the other thing you did during the pandemic, which just blew my mind, was the remote robots. You set them up in your house, but you also had educators kind of set it up for their students. And uh, it was just, yeah, I, I was at the CSTA session where y'all were talking about that. And I was just like, that is the best idea ever. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, really, we were able to kind of leverage some existing platforms that, that were already out there that we had not developed to quickly make it so that you could program a robot over the internet with a blocks-based programming language with something called NetsBlocks. And so I set up a few in my house with cameras pointed at them. Actually, a couple of them were going off earlier and they were making servo noises. I don't know if it came into the, into the audio at all. I hope not, but uh, they were actually running. Uh, so somebody was programming them. I don't know who. And then, you know, that was, that was honestly up and running by mid-April of 2020. And then we started doing workshops where we would either allow people to program remotely over the internet and do that over a Zoom call or uh, teach people how to make their own remote robots. And that is, yeah, it's been a lot of fun and it, it is accessible uh, to other people. Like it's not something you need to be a roboticist or a software developer to do. 
we've had, I'd say at least half a dozen teachers that I personally know have, have made their own remote robots and deployed them in their classrooms, especially last year during the hybrid and remote periods of last year. I think it's just such a great idea, even when we're back in person, because it can be a way to extend the robotics to maybe more students, especially if you're just starting out and, you know, you don't either have the resources or whatever to get, you know, a whole flock of robots, but you can start and get, start building that interest and just experiment with, with things. So I think it's really cool. Well, that is all I had for my questions. Anything else you want to wrap up with? I think the thing that, that keeps me going, I guess, in this is seeing teachers and students do amazing things with the finches and with the hummingbird robots. And one of the things I recognized fairly early on, and by fairly early on, I mean like four years in, but when, when teachers first, when we, when we got our technology to the point where we were comfortable letting teachers use it without constant supervision because of bugs or anything like that. We just started to see like all of these projects that as a research team, we'd never, you know, never seen before. And the analogy there is like movies were quite bad when the people who invented, you know, cameras were making movies. And then people who were in theater got their hands on cameras and they made much better movies. So I, I think, like I said, like I've said a few times, you know, there really is a lot of knowledge and experience in teaching. And so I'm just constantly amazed at seeing that, you know, seeing a, a great teacher working in their classroom. It's, it's a wonderful sight. And it's just, I'm just happy to have provided a small part of that because really the tools are just a small part of the success in the classroom. Thank you so much for taking time with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Kim. 